1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. This is the way, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it gets harder and harder to believe that the vast majority of us work uninspired jobs just to tread water with rising inflation, come home to whatever screen-based entertainment we can tolerate, and continue to take our marching orders from a sick system set up by psychopaths, who probably can't believe we're still so comfortable in this massive multi-layered matrix of lies and misdeeds. From the unfair money magic of fractional reserve banking and a power structure run on blackmail operations to compliance-based education and a medical industrial complex happy to have you pay for your own slow demise. Not to mention an endless string of false flags, psyops, and hidden agendas that even the best struggle to keep up with. It's enough to make many of us throw up our hands and just hope we can find some metaverse avatar that makes us look cool as the last drops of humanity are drained from the masses on the dark road to a transhumanist digital dystopia. Because if you think the past has been tough to navigate, wait until you see the future they have planned. But one of the bright minds of our troubled times is the great John Hamer, who has written about all of this and more in his long string of dense and detailed explorations on all things conspiratorial. His books include the massive two-volume set of Behind the Curtain, a chilling expose of the banking industry clocking in at over 600,000 words, as well as Titanic's Last Secrets, RMS Olympic, The Falsification of History, Our Distorted Reality, and its recent sequel, The Falsification of Science, Our Distorted Reality. He's been here before with two classic episodes from the early days covering institutionalized charity corruption and the Titanic conspiracy, from July 2015, and the history of bankster control and their orchestrated events from June of 2016. Well, today we're going to talk about most likely just a fraction of the work he's done in the last six years, including his latest book, Welcome to the Masquerade, Prelude to the Coming Reset, with co-author Shannon Rowan, who is also here with us today. Shannon is a Wi-Fi refugee, social critic, free-thinking, fine artist, writer, geopolitical author, and researcher, photographer, children's book author, illustrator, and EMF awareness activist living in the wilds of Northern California. It is a real treat to have them both here. The masquerade revealers, conspiratorial chroniclers, and prolific authors of the apocalypse, John and Shannon. Shannon and John, how are you guys? I'm good. I'm, 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 <laughs> sorry, I was... I was waiting for Shannon because she usually jumps in at this point. Yeah, I was, I was trying to be polite and let John go yeah, first. Yeah, I'm pretty months. good, Greg. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us back on. It's really great to be back. Yes, yes. And I'm sure there'll be a little bit of that, which I will iron out in editing, okay. but without seeing each other and having two guests, it's just what happens. Yeah. But it's great to have two guests because it is kind of rare around here. And I am psyched that we're doing this again, John. It was you who really broke us into the Titanic conspiracy and all its glory, okay. as well as the deep dive into the big charities and so many other things. And when you write a book, it is no joke. They often end up being encyclopedias for a certain topic. <laughs> the falsification of science, which you've written since we last spoke, is 700 pages. And welcome to the masquerade which the two of you wrote together covering all aspects of the pandemic and the Great Reset is also about 700 pages. So I've had a busy week trying to tackle these two massive books. 
And while you break everything down so well in Welcome to the Masquerade, I think this audience has a little COVID slash Great Reset fatigue lately. And I've heard plenty of interviews that the two of you have done that go down all sorts of interesting, lesser worn roads. So I hope we could make this more of a grab bag of unexpected random things that I think people would appreciate. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. Ditto. I love it. <laughs> well, let's start by getting to know Shannon a little better. You use the term Wi-Fi refugee, and you say that you became EMF sensitive in 2014, and that's interesting. I didn't know it was something that could be triggered. I thought some people naturally were or some weren't, but talk to us about your EMF sensitivity and what it means for your life now. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think most people who deal with this would say there was a definite trigger and they can trace it to a certain time in their lives. And not to say that some of us haven't always been a little bit more sensitive in general. And I always had, I felt like a very minor sensitivity to it in that my cell phone was uncomfortable, held to my head, like I felt the heating you know, behind my ear, but not more than that. Yeah, I think there's a tipping point because these exposures are cumulative in the body. So you don't really know, like any toxin, you know, and it's all about body burden. And so if you have, say, heavy metals or chemicals or all kinds of assaults at once and your body's not detoxing properly for whatever reason, then, of course, you know, that can throw you into what they're calling hypersensitivity, but it used to be called microwave sickness in the 40s. They've kind of rebranded it to make it sound more like it's the person's fault. They're just sensitive. You know, there's a genetic defect or something. But, you know, radar operators would get microwave sickness or microwave syndrome because they were the only really, you know, the people in our society who were really that exposed. But now everybody's like a radar operator, you know, with the levels of exposures we have now. So I'm hearing there's just new cases of this all the time. It's one way of reacting to it, becoming like hypersensitive, allergic almost, where you feel the effects of it immediately. And people relate, have a lot of different symptoms. With the exposures, like for me, it's primarily cognitive, you know, brain fog, but like extreme head pains and migraines, also chest pains and heart arrhythmia. I was having joint and muscle aches and insomnia and night sweats and all kinds of just horrible things making life completely intolerable. I mean, it's so intolerable for people dealing with this that they do flee like I have. And that's why I call my book Wi-Fi Refugee. And I'm, I say I'm a Wi-Fi refugee. I'm trying to get away from Wi-Fi. Of course, not just Wi-Fi, but all things, you know, EMF related like that. And just, yeah, so I've been living, having to move several times as the grid sort of encroaches everywhere. So we're in a pretty wild place now, although there's still a cell tower here, you know. But we don't get the signal down at our house, which is nice. So, yeah, it's been a kind of interesting journey, to say the least. It did really wake me up to a lot of other agendas when I discovered the corruption in the industry and how, you know, just how deep that went. And so, of course, I mean, I was kind of a person that would question anyway, you know, as an annoying child to my parents and caregivers asking too many questions. I think John can relate to that. You know, we both were those kind of children. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wasn't, I was, you know, I read David Icke. I mean, I had some, you know, awareness of like other agendas and things, but I hadn't really gone that far down the rabbit hole until this happened to me. And then I met John a few years later, actually because of his Titanic work. Um, mm. I happened to 
it's really kind of funny. I actually heard a, a show on the BBC of all places, uh, one of their dramas related to a conspiracy with the Titanic, but they of course don't tell you the whole, they'll need focus on the insurance fraud thing. You know, they don't get into it. Right? right. And so just thinking that maybe that was a lie got me searching the topic and I found John's one of his lectures. And then I bought his book, Falsification of History. And I was so intrigued by it. You know, it just opened my eyes to so many things I hadn't ever thought of, didn't know about. I contacted him because of that. And then we kind of hit it off and kept writing. And then, you know, he knew I had some writing experience and that I knew I was educating him all about the EMF topic. So we decided to write a joint book before the pandemic happened. We were well, you know, got well into more about the transhumanist agenda and EMF topic. And then we diverted. When that happened, we're like, we need to refocus and do this first. So we're going back to the other book coming up here soon. I love it. I love it. And in the book, The Falsification of Science, you guys cover that there are thousands of studies that link wireless radio frequency radiation exposure to a long list of adverse biological effects. Some of them are quite important, like DNA single and double strand breaks. Right. I don't know. I've always just thought if your DNA breaks, you're dead. But clearly, that's like a topic <laughs> the last two years people have been talking about scanners at airports unraveling mm. DNA and all sorts of strange stuff. But the forward facing effects like headaches or brain fog are just so interesting because they're hard to peg to something. You could think, oh, I just didn't sleep good last night or I'm just dehydrated. And how many times do you have to go through brain fog and headaches before you're like, oh, maybe it's that tower outside because yeah. it's just not on people's radar that much. Yes. And when you talk about 5G and some of this stuff in that book, you talk about how some of these effects are particularly devastating for plants and rain. Mm -hmm. And I just found that to be interesting. Humans and animals alike consume plants as a food source, and therefore the effects of millimeter waves on plants could leave us with food that is unsafe for consumption. The water that falls from the sky onto these plants will also be irradiated. Mm -hmm. A 2010 study on aspen seedlings showed that the exposure to radio frequencies led to the leaves showing necrosis symptoms. Yeah. I mean, yikes. A lot of people talk about how does this affect humans? Clearly not good, but plants and water. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the reason they're cutting down so many trees to make way for 5G, which is really, of course, so funny because they call it, you know, smart cities and environmentally sustainable and all this crap, you know, greenwash it. You know, why would you have to cut down thousands of trees if you're trying to save the environment, you know, for a technology that's <laughs> supposed to help you save the environment? I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But the reason I think they say it's because you know, it doesn't penetrate through trees and trees block the signal. However, I think that that's not true. And there's a lot of evidence to show that's not true. I think what they're really doing is getting rid of the evidence of harm in advance because trees that have been left standing near the 5G transmitters get like burned on the side closest to the transmitter and like not on the other side. So, you know, you see it, it's so visual, you know, it, it's like people are going to have a hard time denying that unless they just don't see it happening, right? Mm -hmm. They'll blame, you know, climate change or whatever on what we start seeing with the trees. You know, we saw this was happening in Arizona where I, I lived before moving to California with the cactus, you know, with the saguaro cacti. 
it seemed that in areas of high EMFs, they were dying. And everybody's like, why are they dying? What's wrong? Mm. Um, they even hide the towers like in the cactus, you know, <laughs> like a fake cactus, like, and it's actually like a 5G thing, right? Yeah. Well, they do it with trees as well. I mean, yeah, and fake, fake trees, trees right? here where, the, where the 5G masks are, yeah. Right. Well, the last point I wanted to make about 5G is that you also write about studies done where it largely affects the skin with a burning sensation. Now, they tell us that, well, it just makes you think your skin is burning, but you cite cases where, no, there are burns and boils on people's skin. Mm -hmm. But the point is that these little towers we see going up across major cities could potentially be triggered to cause that skin burning effect largely as a method of crowd control. So the infrastructure is being put in place now to keep any large groups from resisting in mass, it seems. Yeah. The ADS, it's called active denial system, is what the military's non-lethal weapon is called that uses 5G, you know, I mean, what we call 5G for communications, but, you know, millimeter waves. And they say, yeah, it just causes the heat to feel like it's burning and you're on fire. It makes people flee because they feel like they're on fire, but it doesn't hurt you. Don't worry. Except <laughs> they do admit, oh, wait, it does cause blistering and burns in some sensitive people, you know, those freaks yeah. like me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, so don't worry. It's just a few people might have that. But I mean, this is ridiculous because the other thing is that our skin, our sweat glands have, so they say it won't penetrate more than the skin. Well, first of all, you have your thyroid at your skin level, right under the skin. You have your eyes or organs. Those are important organs. You know, they're at the level of your skin. You also have sweat glands that act as antennas, right? So they actually like can draw in that radiation deep into your body, like it conducts it into your body. So, I mean, this is just, anyway, 5G is used with 4G, which is microwaves, which does penetrate deep into your body. You know, so it's not used separately from that. So they're really just increasing the exposure with the 4G as well. The benefit in terms of, from the view of our controllers, having 5G is beam forming. You can direct it and target like a specific person especially say if you have a so-called vaccine you know, ingredients that has a Bluetooth signature that tells you exactly, tells the system, you know, they're exactly who you are and where you are, all the better, right? Right, right. And it is good to bring up 4G, 3G, other signals we deal with because 5G always feels like, oh, this is the next thing. It's coming. We better watch out. Meanwhile, we're watching these YouTube videos about it on our cell phones, yeah. which are already considered carcinogenic when it comes to their signals. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, let's look at what we got and not try to shift to the future because we're addicted to the current technology and we don't want to deal with what's already happening. Right. I got sick with 4G. I know people got sick with 3G, you know, so that's when that rolled out was when I got really sick. Mm. Every new generation of this electromagnetic stuff has caused severe problems with people. And I think what happens is, as time goes by, people get used to, not a good thing, but your body gets used to it in a certain way. And although it's still doing you damage, because all EMF causes damage to the human cells, without question, you don't feel it. Okay, or certain people don't. I know you do, Shannon, but right. ever since the advent of electricity if we go back into the mists of time you know in the in the mid 19th century people were suffering from exposure to electrical the byproduct of electricity which is like dirty electricity it's like 
the overspill from electric wires, which happens yeah. all the time anyway, and people were falling ill then. The famous story that I heard when I did my research on this was that when the American railroads began crossing the continent out to the west and everything, once they got going, the telegraph wires were all down one side of the train itself. And I can't remember whether it was the left or the right side, but whichever it was, quite often passengers who'd been sitting on that side next to the telegraph lines for a very long journey, of course, in some cases thousands of miles, were feeling really bad effects of exposure to the electrical current overspill from the telegraph wires at the side of the tracks. This is going back a long, long time, and I think the human body has probably adapted itself, again, not in a good way, to cope with that kind of thing. But as each new generation comes along, then more and more adverse effects are being seen. And of course, each generation is more severe than the others. So, you know, obviously the first one wasn't that bad, and then so on, until we reach the 5G situation. And 5G is really, really insidious, and it's really dangerous to us all, even though the majority of us, unlike Shannon, don't feel those effects necessarily, but it's still doing severe cell damage to us all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And like Greg said, we also just might not necessarily think about that, you know, because you yeah. know, we have epidemic levels of brain fog and insomnia and headaches now, you know, I mean, people are not feeling good. <laughs> of course, yeah. they're going to blame that on a virus or whatever. And and we forget how we used to feel before this. So to me, yeah. I always tell people, try to find if you can, it's harder and harder, find a place without this stuff. I mean, like really without it, you know, power lines, cell towers, everything, see how you feel. Yeah. You know, compare. That's what I first did when I was questioning, like, what was going on. And that's how I really could start to pinpoint it going away. You know, I just did these experiments, you know, next to it, away from it, farther away from it, out of town, you know, and tracked my feeling, how I felt. And really, it's about listening to your body and being in touch with it. And a lot of us are getting pulled more and more out of our bodies. And Greg, I loved your intro. I was actually had to mute myself because I was sort of laughing, <laughs> not because it's funny, but it's just so you just nailed it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of question I ask all the time. Like, how is this still happening? How are we actually putting up with this? You know, and like you said, it's like, what's the options for the future? Like, you're just going to see if you can find a good avatar. Hopefully it looks better than Mark Zuckerberg's right. and join everybody in his metaverse, you know? <laughs> and I mean, but this is what's, you know, we're being conditioned. And I think it's a very long, it's been a long process over decades. We're being conditioned to actually disassociate with our bodies and our environments so that we can be more easily controlled, of course, but also moving us into this sort of virtual reality. And so the only way to like kind of take back our humanity and our world is to sort of start to re-embody ourselves and our environment, which means, you know, disconnecting from this technology as much as we can more and more. Well said. Yeah. I mean, the thing about 5G is, I mean, I don't want to labor the point too yeah. much, but the thing about 5G is that there's so many different facets to it and there's so many different parts of the agenda that it fulfills. One of the main ones being, you know, the move towards transhumanism, which is where we're going if these people get their own way. And 5G will definitely facilitate that particular aspect of their insidious agenda, sadly. Right. But there are lots of other elements to it that are not good. Yeah, I agree. And just to uh, talk about something, because time goes so fast, especially with two guests, let's switch gears to something that nobody would be able to predict that is in 
your book, Falsification of Science, or that I would ask you about, and that is flexible glass. Now, flexible glass, yeah. I think we know that there are a lot of technologies that have been suppressed. That is a whole nother chapter of your book. And there's all sorts of things in the ancient world that just don't make sense. Yeah. But I was just really interested in this in your ancient technology and knowledge section. Let me read this quote. You say flexible glass is allegedly a form of unbreakable glass that was invented during the Roman period, 100 to 400 BC. It is also said to be a legendarily lost invention dating to the region of the Roman emperor Tiberius. While no physical evidence of such a glass has been found so far, there are two main written sources attesting to its existence. One of these is Pliny the Elder's Natural History, and he didn't write fiction. And in his Natural History, Pliny reports that Flexible glass was made by a skilled glassmaker during the time of Tiberius, but instead of gaining the favor of the Roman emperor, the craftsman had his workshop shut down. Yeah, This was thought to, to prevent the value of precious metals like gold, silver, and copper from being depreciated by this new material. Damn, well, I think that is so interesting. And planned obsolescence is a real thing. Fragile products are more profitable, but I never heard of a flexible, durable glass like that. Very interesting thing to dig up. Yeah, I mean, it is. It was quite interesting, actually, research in this section of the book, because, you know, that's just one of the elements of that particular chapter, Greg, which, you know, it is very interesting. Apparently, what happened, Tiberius asked to see this guy who had invented this incredible glass, and he took the glass, and he threw it on the floor. And obviously, Tiberius expected the glass to shatter, as all glass had done up to that point. And it just bent. And the guy picked it up. And he knocked it back into shape again. And Tiberius asked if he knew of any other guy who had knowledge of this and how to make it. And the guy said, no, you know, it's just me. So it promptly had him executed. And the reason that he had him executed was, as you kind of touched on there, was because he had a massive hoard of gold and he didn't want it to be devalued. So he thought by killing the inventor, it would suppress the invention, which is exactly what happened. I mean, there's no absolute categoric proof that it did exist other than in those two particular accounts that you mentioned. So it's not so much a suppressed technology as a kind of a lost technology, if you like. Yeah, it's a really interesting story because it rhymes with so many other stories. It rhymes with why cannabis was made illegal because it disrupted the textile industry and other things that had nothing to do with consumption or... Prohibition apparently was about getting alcohol out of the culture because cars could run on alcohol and they wanted it to be oil only so they could control it. Right. So it is a story that has popped up many times throughout history. So I'm not super surprised by it, except that it is just a new context I hadn't heard. And I should also rephrase what I said about Pliny the Elder not writing fiction because it wasn't ever promoted as fiction, but as I got through this falsification of science book, maybe the whole world is fiction. I don't know. Maybe everything we've ever been told is real actually isn't. So I guess Mm -hmm. I should rephrase that. But he was a serious person who didn't write about things that were framed as fiction. This was supposed to be something that you were supposed to take seriously. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's never known to have written anything fictional at all. Indeed, exactly the same as Plato, 
you know, the Greek philosopher who wrote about Atlantis. I know we're getting off the topic slightly, but I'll just say this because of the parallel. You know, Plato wrote about the lost continent of Atlantis and he unearthed, goodness knows where it's from, but he unearthed a lot of information about Atlantis and the fact that it definitely did exist. And again, Plato was never, ever known to have written or spoken about anything fictional. All his work was nonfiction. So it's a parallel to that. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, why would he make this up? You know, it's obviously perfectly plausible. Nobody knows how to make it today, of course, but I don't think it's something we should just dismiss out of hand. No, not at all. And and that's uh, such a great section of the book that people would be interested in. You, you cover the Antikythera mechanism. You cover a 1,200-year-old yeah. telephone that yeah. people have dug up in Peru. And there was this other thing I had never heard of. You talk about Han purple and Egyptian blue. Tell people what that's about. Right. Han purple and Egyptian blue. Yeah. These were pigments created by, well, Han purple was created by the Chinese about 2,500 years ago. And it was used in the wall paintings and on the famous terracotta warriors that were discovered a few decades ago. And it was also used in ceramics and metal and jewelry. It's actually, you know, an incredible technological wonder. You know, it's made through a complicated process of grinding up materials in precise proportions and heating it to incredible temperatures. And it wasn't able to be recreated until 1992 when they finally discovered its composition. So, yeah, it was one of those things that some research has actually discovered that it had some amazing properties, including the ability to emit powerful rays of light in the infrared range, as well as being able to collapse three dimensions down to two under the right conditions. And it dates back as far as 800 BC. So yeah, it's an amazing substance. And the, you know, nobody really knows how the Chinese stumbled upon the idea or how to create it. What they did actually, they combined silica or sand with copper and barium in absolutely precise proportions and heated it to around a thousand degrees centigrade. So yeah. It could have been a byproduct of the glassmaking process, but you know, apparently barium tends to make glass shinier and cloudy, which means that the pigment could be the work of an early alchemist trying to synthesize. So yeah, again, it's one of those mysteries. It has been recreated, but nobody really understands how the Chinese managed to do it and you know, make it so incredibly complex. It has fluorescent properties and, you know, quantum physicists from places like Stanford and Los Alamos reported that hand purple, when it's exposed to extreme cold and powerful magnetism, the chemical structure of the pigment enters a new state, which they've called the quantum critical point in which three dimensional material actually loses dimension. It's quite amazing. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just mind-blowing, really. Uh, <laughs> it really is. And oftentimes, I'll interview people about the ancient megaliths and how could they build this and yeah. look how straight these lines are. And that's all interesting. But these other little things, they 
never really get talked about. No. There's another weird thing you talk about called the Greek fire that the Byzantines of the 7th and 12th century fired this mysterious substance at their enemies in naval battles. It was a fiery liquid that they shot through some sort of tubes and it burned in water and could only be extinguished with vinegar, sand, and urine. And <laughs> we still do not know what this chemical weapon known as Greek fire was comprised of. Yeah. And it seems to be another secret loss to history. Obviously, that's a weapon, so they guarded it quite well. But there's also the Lysurgis cup, which you say researchers have taken this jade green ancient cup from the Romans and looked at it under the microscope and discovered that the ancient Romans had created the glass with silver and gold particles that were ground down to be as small as 50 nanometers in diameter. Yeah. This is less than one thousandth the size of a grain of salt and suggests that the Romans knew what they were doing, meaning that they had knowledge of nanoparticles. Correct, yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, the thing is about the Lysurgis cup is when the lights strikes the cup, the electrons within the particles vibrate in ways that actually alter the color depending on whereabouts you're looking at it from, so from the position of the observer. So when different liquids are actually poured inside the cup and it was struck by light, the electrons behave differently, which changes the color, obviously. And apparently, I'm not an expert on this, but apparently I've been told that this is precisely how home pregnancy tests work. But obviously the Romans got there first. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of this light therapy being used today that uses color and light for healing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so sunlight going through colored glass, for instance, or say like a tungsten or incandescent light you can use. There's a whole book called, I haven't read it yet myself, but Let There Be Light. I think it's out of print, but you can still get it. It actually like specifically tells you what ailments, what color to use and how long and everything. And I met a woman in Mexico who was actually getting like colored glass bottles and just putting water in them and setting the sun. And she was like healing people, locals, all kinds of things with this water they drink after it was in the sun with the colored glass. And this is why people think, Possibly stained glass in cathedrals was for healing purposes, and that cathedrals themselves were designed as healing spaces. Yes. Not for yes. religious ceremony. Yeah. 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 I've heard this too. Yeah. Right. It seems like at least some of these structures were already there or adapted when the Inquisition steamrolled their way through, and they're mm -hmm. like, hey, these are things we made, and we made them just to worship our God. And it's like, that's how they kind of took a lot of the meat out of these structures. Yeah. And I've also seen research that claims that, I mean, I don't know how much truth there is in it, but it sounds plausible to me that cathedrals were actually energy. transmitters and receivers Power. of energy. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, there's so much obviously that's hidden from us and lost on purpose. It's probably in the basement of the Vatican, all this information, <laughs> if we could get there. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's like they want us to believe it's clear that they want us to believe, you know, through so-called science that we're constantly evolving in one direction and only always getting better so that then we believe all new technologies means progress and enlightenment or something. And like yeah. it's this linear view of the world and history. And I just think that's completely wrong. Yeah. And so yeah. once you don't buy that and you realize that's a lie and why they're telling us that, then you can understand that the ancients may have obviously, you know, it seems there's evidence had 
technologies that are lost to us that are actually much more intelligent design and you know healthier for us. And it, we weren't just primitive ape-like beings that lived in caves and couldn't speak and you know gradually got to this point. I mean, and we can see this sort of you know de-evolution even in our lifetimes in terms of health and you know physical well-being, even mentally, cognitively, you know, IQs dropping. So obviously that's not true. You know, just within our own lifetimes, you see that. Yeah, I mean, the the themes, the overall themes of both my books, Falsification of History and its sister volume, The Falsification of Science, which we've just been talking about, the running theme through that is that history and science are falsified to promote the agenda that they want us to hear. You know, the, the powers that be that rule over us are few in number. You know, there are the thousands. We're eight billion. The only way over the centuries and millennia that they've been able to control them, because it's the same multi-generational families, it's still in charge as it was, you know, back way back when. The only way that they can control eight billion people is by creating this false state of reality, which involves, you know, erasing history, changing history, erasing certain elements of science, suppressing stuff. And this has been the case for many, many years. And what my books do is they highlight some, and it is only some, of those actual examples in both fields, you know, history and science. You know, there's obviously way too much going on to cover the whole thing, but it's just kind of a taster for the reader, if you like. Yes, yes. And that really is the name of the game today, is I just kind of cherry-picked a few things from these, between the two books, 1,400 pages yeah. Uh, I tried to get to, and I'm trying to shoehorn as much in as possible. But that chapter about ancient technology and knowledge contained a lot of stuff I had never heard about. But to get past the cherry picking and dive right into the meat, when it comes to the falsification of science, you put the target largely on the Royal Society and their interlocking cooperation with Freemasonry. Talk to us a bit about that history and the rise of the Royal Society and what really they're responsible for. Yeah, I mean, the two things, Freemasonry and the Royal Society, are intrinsically linked. Um, the Royal Society, for those who are not aware, is a British organization, ostensibly. But it, it is the be-all and end-all of what's acceptable science and what isn't. And when you bear in mind that that is totally controlled under the control of Freemasonry, which again is an integral part of the elite powers that be and part of this group that suppress ideas, that suppress history, that suppress science and change history and change science to their own model, we can understand that the scientific world or the scientific data and information that we hope to be true, we hope to be truisms, are very far from that. Okay, so basically it's all run by secret societies, the Freemasons, of course, and I mean, the Royal Society was founded in about 16, the mid 1600s. I can't remember the exact date. And it was created with the intention of promoting scientific inquiry rather than this simple acceptance of received wisdom, which, I mean, it's so ironic, but, <laughs> you know, that it is actually the opposite of that. And then in the early 1700s, Freemasonry kind of began to grow and spread throughout Europe, first of all. And it 
gradually, you know, got its tentacles into the Royal Society. And it's through the Royal Society that they're able to promote fake science and to lie to us to a massive extent about what's real and what isn't real in science. It's thoroughly controlled. You do not get to become a, a senior person in the Royal Society without being a Freemason, without being a senior Freemason. And I think most people understand that Freemasonry is, is a very, very strong controlling influence over accepted knowledge and wisdom, as well as, you know, scientific truths. So, yeah, it's very, very insidious. You know, all underhanded stuff. It's all controlled by people who should not be in that position of power because of the vested interest that they hold in determining what the agenda is and the agenda that the mainstream follows. So, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> can I add to that, John? Sure. So, yeah, just as an example, Edward Jenner, you know, who came up with this vaccine idea, you know, he wasn't just some humble country doctor like they like to tell us. He was also a member of the Royal Society and yeah. a high ranking master Freemason. He was master of a lodge that Darwin family frequented, along with the Prince of Wales, who was later you know, became king. And so these are like, you know, he was up there and also his uncle, you know, I think he was the one getting him into the, recommended him to the Royal Society, which was John Hunter, who was actually known for his grave robbing expeditions, <laughs> exploits, uh, because he was right. a surgeon. Well, he did a lot of dissections and they consider him the father of modern surgery. You know, so they were actually relatives. So when you really look into this deeply, all these fathers of whatever, you know, immunology, I mean, they're all involved in this Royal Society and Freemasons. Going back even further, you also see the influence of the Vatican and the Jesuits because you've got Copernicus and Galileo, you know, coming up with these ideas, you know, this fake science backed by the Pope and the Vatican. And then the Jesuits themselves you know, started a lot of secret organizations. You've got like the Skull and Bones and all these fraternities, you know, with the Jesuit ties who, and their whole mission was to infiltrate through these societies, through like literary clubs, you know, book clubs and things to get into the education aspect, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's interlocking groups, I think, but definitely like different players as well. And I, you know, it's hard to know how many of them actually are working together but it does seem like there's a kind of common goal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah, yeah, well, just, I mean, just to expand a little bit on Jenner, you know, it's a great example of the idea that we're, we're contemplating here. But Jenner wasn't even a proper doctor. I mean, he only bought his doctorate. I, I can't remember how much he paid for it. But it, he it, paid, was, it was like 17 pounds or something. Yeah, which, which is a lot of money in those days, to be fair. Yeah. You know, that, that was yeah. like, I don't know what the conversion rate is, but. It was several thousand pounds, but the fact is he wasn't even qualified in medical matters. He was just placed there by the Royal Society or by whoever. Yeah, he apprenticed with his uncle Hunter for yeah. a couple of years, and that was it. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't so uncommon back then. I mean, they didn't have the sort of, and not to like say that it's better now because we have the AMA and, you know, people are, you know, go through the proper channels and they get their proper degrees because that's not necessarily, I mean, but when we're talking about, allopathic medicine which isn't really to me real medicine then you know it's a whole different scene but that's what's sort of taken over with the ama and you know similar groups as a monopoly in order to 
push out actual like healers, anybody yes. who might be anybody who could help you heal. And so now we have the doctors, you know, with the degrees <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. it's like buying it versus going through that system is hardly any different, you know, I mean, yes. at the end, the yes. end result, right? Yeah. I, I mean, another one of the most famous members of the Royal Society was a guy by the name of Isaac Newton, who in, mm. invented gravity. And I use that word invented very, very carefully. <laughs> <Very laughs> yes, that, literally. Just, <laughs> That leads me right into kind of what I wanted to say, because we're going to scale this up, you know, with the last 10, 15 minutes of the first hour here. You kind of say that when it comes to the Royal Society and their quote unquote contributions to the world, they're kind of grouped into three main pillars of modern science and what yeah. we seem to think we understand about reality. The Big Bang Theory, the Theory of Evolution and the Globe Earth. And these three things... Yeah which we've all we've talked about before so I don't think anybody's getting uh too triggered by that but they they kind of all support each other in an interlocking way and they're all kind of designed to make us feel like meaningless specks in a random universe Correct. and they have a lot of psychological effects on us yeah. but yeah. of them I wanted to talk about dinosaurs because it's a issue that people don't think about very much but as you look deeper into it it's kind of odd that there's a lot of inconsistencies here. And you make great points in the book that build up to a case that this is a big fabrication. Of course, it supports evolution yeah. or, you know, their idea of evolution. The reason you'd make it up, it supports evolution. It supports this idea that we could all be wiped out at any time by a big asteroid. Mm. And it also curiously ties into oil because the oil men would tell us, oh, well, they're fossil fuels. It's a limited resource. Yep. So the price is going to be jacked up and it could all go away. So there are reasons to lie about giant lizards yep. in the ancient <laughs> past that might not be immediately obvious. But talk to us about the perception versus reality when you went down this rabbit hole and why you've concluded that dinosaurs are just a Royal Society invention. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously taking evolution as the basis for that particular idea. Evolution came along in the mid 19th century, as most people know. It was proposed by, allegedly by a guy named Charles Darwin, who had a handler by the name of Thomas Henry Huxley who was the grandfather of Aldous Huxley, who wrote the famous novel Brave New World. You know, in other words, they were insiders. Darwin himself was a senior Freemason. And as you quite rightly said, Greg, dinosaurs are what I refer to as a prop. They prop up the theory of evolution. Notice that the word theory in that, yet it's taught to school children and everyone else assumes it to be fact even though it's still called the theory of evolution. In fact, even Darwin himself doubted it at the end of his life. And there are several examples in his letters, some of which I quote in the book, that bear out that premise that he wasn't absolutely convinced by it, but it was promoted very, very heavily. And you mentioned and write, he also, sorry, he also had a handler with Thomas Huxley, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Huh. Absolutely. And it was Thomas Huxley, grandfather of Aldous Huxley, who was the one who really promoted it. He's just like out there saying, hey, this yeah. Darwin guy came up with this and he's the That's one right. really promoting it. And Darwin's there like, hey, uh, hold on a second. You're kind of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, exactly. And then you got George Orwell. What's his pen name, right? Who was a student of Huxley, actually. Right. He's happened to have him as like a French teacher. 
I didn't actually know that, Shannon. That's yeah. Thank you for that, Gem. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. just to get back to the dinosaur situation. Okay, so isn't it miraculous that the first dinosaur fossil was never found until just about the same time as the theory of evolution was being proposed? There are so many fake dinosaur fossils out there. Well, they're all fake because... <laughs> these beasts did not yeah. exist and certainly not in the way that we're told these the huge tyrannosaurus rexes which serious animal anatomists and paleontologists serious ones not the mainstream ones will actually tell you a tyrannosaurus rex is absolutely impossible that body structure is absolutely impossible it would just topple over its head weighs too much its tail's not heavy enough to support the whole structure and design of that body type so yeah there were a couple of the brothers tell uh, about the brothers <laughs> that's the funniest story to me about these two dinosaur which, bone hunters aren't they brothers that no um, they weren't brothers no they oh, were they were, they were friends they were friends brothers. <laughs> and they became bitter rivals oh and they embarked on this spree of one-upmanship about who could discover the most dinosaur types and this went on for several decades in the 19th century and they came up with all these weird and wonderful ideas for what constituted dinosaurs, you know, just based on like a tiny alleged bone fragment or a tooth. And they were drawing these incredible visual representations of what they believed these animals to look like based on these tiny, tiny fragments of something or other. And it was later discovered that almost 90% of what they did was sheer fakery. That's what's that. funny, isn't it? Because the authorities, let's say, right, the Smithsonian or whatever, were like, okay, yeah. well, all these hundreds you've sent us, like at least 300, these are fake, but we'll take these couple. We'll say these are real. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would you even ever, you've determined these people are frauds, utter frauds, and yes. then you still say that they're right about like one or two of them or some small yeah. percentage? Like, how does yeah. that even happen? How are they not exactly. completely discredited forever? Exactly. It doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah. Right. And you have some quotes in the book from paleontologists talking about the fact that everything we see on display at the museum is just fake, but they represent the true dinosaur bones, which are hidden away down in the basement. Yeah. So they say, but it is an interesting <laughs> point that uh, this idea came from Sir Richard Owen just as a concept, the classification dinosauria, meaning giant lizards. And he was yes. from the Royal Society. He came up with this in 1842 yep. and then all of a sudden all these dinosaur bones are found yet no culture in the world had ever discovered a single dinosaur bone or fossil before he came up with this concept and then all of a sudden they're everywhere correct uh, basically magically and another yeah. thing that's interesting i saw a meme once probably on one of the flatter things that i follow but it was a real head scratcher and it was just that dinosaurs as we know them Think about them in sexual positions. When you think about a T-Rex or a Brontosaurus or so many of the dinosaurs they presented to us <laughs> yeah. and picture them mating, it does not work. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. a, it's a really enduring image. That. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> dinosaurs mating, lovely. Yeah. I had not thought of that before. Yeah, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something um, to keep you up at night. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, None of the bones on display at any of the natural history museums throughout the world 
are real and you know as you say there are real ones but they're kept away from prying eyes because Literally. they're too valuable and they're all in the yeah. basement Nobody but there is actually <laughs> there is actually and i mentioned this in, in the book there's a huge factory in Sichuan province in china that are actually dedicate themselves to manufacturing false dinosaur bones and they actually boast about the fact that they supply all the major natural history museums such as smithsonian the natural history museum in london and all throughout the world with these fake dinosaur bones and they even tell us how they make them hmm. and it's there in black and white on the internet telling us that all these bones are fake <laughs> okay Although they're not really saying the ones hidden in the basement. They're saying the they ones on display. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Forgeries represent a real thing that you can't see or access. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Just like we yeah. can't access the moon, only the special, you know, elite few. Yeah. Yes. Well, well, here we go. So, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, topic. dinosaurs <laughs> are just an example yeah. Uh, yeah. of the wider premise you're putting out here, which is that a lot of science and whole fields have been made up. Paleontology, the fossils of dinosaurs, which are kept within this tight circle, uh, not to go too much into the medical stuff, but virology, another tightly controlled field that convinces yes. us that viruses are the cause of almost all illness. And then NASA constantly getting caught with CGI space stuff and astronauts on wires and all kinds of things that make you think they're just bubbles in space full of shit too, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, well, here's the, here's the thing though. So a lot of these ideas, like let's say flat earth, because the earth is like at a, at a, a macro scale that is hard for a, a human to really verify for themselves. Yes. And then viruses are at a micro scale. That's also kind of outside the realm of what I feel like I'm ever going to be able to verify to feel 100% on either one of these things. I think they're interesting. I keep them up in my head with other ideas and as possibilities. But I guess when I start to think about these things all being fabrications from a source like the Royal Society, yeah. I would think that as time had, had gone on, they would be even more protective of this stuff. But it's a little risky when anyone can get a degree in paleontology or virology it's not easy you got to go through a lot of hoops but people yeah. can do it and it's like if these were fabrications from the beginning you would think that they'd be more protective over the ideas to the fact that regular folks like you and i couldn't even get degrees in this fields what do you what in these fields what do you think about that I, i'll say that first of all as long as they own the media and the politicians and the regu regulators, it doesn't really matter because you know a lot of scientists who go through these degrees come out as whistleblowers you know, they yeah. do. They see that and they write books and they talk on podcasts, whatever. But does the average person ever hear about it? No. And if they exactly. do, they're just discredited as some loony fringe scientists, you know, the fringe yeah. doctors. Like we're seeing that over and over again, with the pandemic it's, stuff. So it's the same it's, theme. And so I think also, though, when you go through that indoctrination program, which is several years long and full of trauma based mind control, you're not really the same person when you come out of that. And it's very hard. Think about our just you and I, and you know, you, Greg, like growing up and the things we were taught and what we believed for a very long time, not because based on our own observations or anything, but because of it's like how you're even conducting observations and thinking about them. You already have this mindset. You're already seeing it through this, your own mm -hmm. rosy colored glasses that are going to give yep. you, you know, you're seeing it a certain way. You're biased and they don't see their own bias. So yeah. A lot of people are believers who are in these programs, you know, who are scientists and they just are not able to take off those filters. 
Yeah, I mean, the key thing for me is that whistleblowers tend not to get a platform, obviously, because mainstream, as Shannon kind of mentioned, whistleblowers, they're not given a mainstream platform, so they don't reach a wide audience. But I've got a great quote here that I put in the book, I think. I think it was in the book, but it's in one of my presentations that I do on the three pillars of fake science, it's called. And I'd like to read this quote out. It's just a couple of minutes, if I may. And this is from a guy by the name of Sam, who didn't want his surname to be known. And it goes like this. He's a molecular biologist, by the way. Okay. He said, and I quote, to be a molecular biologist requires one to hold on to two contradictory insanities at all times. One, it would be insane to believe in evolution when you can see the truth for yourself. Two, it would be insane to admit you don't believe in evolution. All government work, research grants, papers, big college lectures, everything would stop. I'd be out of a job or relegate it to the outer fringes where I couldn't earn a decent living. The work I do in genetic research is honorable, but in the meantime, we have to live with the elephant in the living room. Intelligent design is that elephant in the living room. It moves around, takes up an enormous amount of space, loudly trumpets, bumps into us, knocks things over, eats a ton of hay, and smells like an elephant, and yet we have to swear it isn't there. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a great quote. I yeah. like that. I like that. So one of my other big questions, because we're talking about epic lies. These lies, if they are real lies, I mean, they are the biggest lies we've ever been told. Things like round earth, viruses, dinosaurs, and yep. even nukes, which we haven't gotten into yet. If they're all fabrications of the Royal Society, why don't we see in today's world smaller nations or leaders outside of the network calling them out on these things? Because there's a lot of smaller nations mm -hmm. that the West has exploited and dominated throughout time. But now we're all interconnected. So communication can yeah. really travel, yet mm -hmm. they don't seem to call the elite out on trying to foist some of this fake science onto the rest of the world because the West is not everything. Well, yeah, I mean, well, they do, right. I think sometimes. What it's was a it? similar scenario, yeah. Shannon, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it, same. It, you know, they don't get a platform. You yeah. know, these people, such as they are, and they are in a vast minority, I have to say, because most of the first world nations and a lot of the second and third world nations, too, are controlled by our friend Mr. Schwab in the WEF. He had <laughs> yeah, a program the, called mean, the Young Leaders, yeah. and he's put his placement in all these countries. Anyone who shows any form of dissent whatsoever is either deposed or worse okay yeah. so anything that these people speak about is suppressed by the mainstream because mm -hmm. at the end of the day the mainstream media works for one group only and that is the people who run the world okay they don't work for we the people and when you're a smaller country you're even more easily controlled in some ways i mean it's so easy to buy out these leaders or just get rid of them you know if they start i mean we've seen it happen over and over again i mean you know, Gaddafi was, I mean, so many of these leaders are executed as soon as yep. they don't play ball, you know, and they know that. And it's like, so who's going to dare step out of line? And they do sometimes, I forget what African countries, I mean, you know, was it during the pandemic, you know, with the PCR was like tested, yeah. like all these different fruit and everything. And it pretended there John, were people. John Magafuli, and that was publicized. And then a few weeks later, oh dear, he was dead. 
Yeah, coconut tested positive for COVID, yeah, that I kind of so. stuff. Yeah, and COVID did show us how much coordination there really is in the world when they really want to cash in those chips and make everybody fall in line. That is true. Some of this stuff, though, is just so epic. But, you know, whistleblowers do help to make the case, and I've heard some from the medical field, but I haven't really heard of very many insiders from NASA that became whistleblowers or paleontologists who became whistleblowers or nuclear yeah. physicists that have become whistleblowers. If there are some, obviously, I'd love to hear about them if you have any other examples. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. But what I will say is obviously there are whistleblowers. That's how this information gets out into the public domain. Yeah. Yes, it's very infrequently and it's very sparse the amount of information that we do get to hear about. But nevertheless, it is out there. You know, I mean, I found all this stuff. You know, I didn't make it up. It is all out there if you're diligent enough in doing your research, which, by the way, gets more and more difficult as each year goes yeah. by because of the censorship of the Internet. You know, certain topics are just absolutely, you know, they're being deleted. They're being removed from the Internet. So it gets more and more difficult to do your research. But nevertheless, it's still not impossible. Yeah, they don't even have to remove anything. They just make it impossible to search for. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, these are some of the big questions people have. And so to talk flat earth, it is something that we've done whole shows on in the past. And I don't really know how big a segment we will dedicate to it today. But the last time we spoke, maybe 2016, I think that might have been before I interviewed Eric DeBay or maybe right around the time. But I didn't necessarily know you were on this page, John, but I'm curious if you could talk to us about the path or the, 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 the biggest things that caused you to consider it. Yeah, well, first of all, I haven't been down this path for very long, you know, a couple of years at the very most. So... Was it 2016 when last we spoke? My goodness. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's only the last couple of years I've come to this. And to be honest, like a lot of people who go down the flat earth route, I actually set off down there to try and disprove it, to try and disprove it in my own head because I couldn't believe it. And I've, I've spoken to many, many people, you know, people like Eric DeBay and, yeah, several people, Dave Murphy in the UK, about it. And they, a lot of those people went exactly the same route as me, that they thought that it was just nonsense. So they tried to back it up with fact. And I started out looking at it because of someone sent me some information about it. And I read it and I thought, yeah, that all seems to make sense, but I still don't believe it. And it was a very gradual process over a couple of years. You know, at first I was like 50-50, and then I went 75-25, and then 90-10. And then it's mm -hmm. only in the last, shall we say, I don't know, six months that I've actually, I'm now 100% that it's flat because it just fits into everything else. Although I suspected it earlier when I was writing Falsification of Science, I was still a slight skeptic, but not now. I have never come across anything now and this has just happened in the last few weeks, that the globe Earth is propound as proof of a globe Earth as being refutable. There is nothing, absolutely nothing. Everything that they come out with, it's possible to 
refute with flat earth arguments. Hmm. And that is what's tipped me into being 100% now because I've not heard a single argument that can't be refuted. Well, there are some specific experiments, too, that have happened, right, that you could talk to us about, like the Bishop experiment or the Bedford level experiments. How convincing were those for you? Well, very convincing. I mean, it speaks volumes. I mean, the Bishop experiment was a very simple one. A guy by the name of, I think it's Tom Bishop, off the top of my head, he took a telescope at one end of Monterey Bay in your neck of the woods or reasonably near your neck of the woods. Yeah. And he watched through this telescope people walking in the sea at the far end of the bay, which was 23 miles away. And he saw people walking their dogs along the beach and people just generally having fun in the surf and the sea and the sand. And that sounds okay. That sounds fine. But the problem with that is, from a globe Earth perspective, is that over 23 miles, using the globe Earth curvature calculation, it should have been impossible to see those people. They would have disappeared over the curve of the horizon at that distance. And this is just one example. I mean, there are many, many instances of, of impossible viewpoints on the globe Earth that are actually real. Now, the globe earthers will come out and tell us it's something to do with refraction. Yeah, that's uh, always funny. <laughs> yeah. It's just the trick of the light that you can oh, suddenly see over the curve. <laughs> that's, that's another one. It's just utter nonsense. But there's examples throughout the world of viewpoints that are just impossible. There's a particular one in Italy where you can see the island of Elba about 100 miles from the mainland quite clearly with binoculars. And people say this business about when a ship sails away, you can see it disappears, it dips over the horizon. Nonsense, it doesn't. All that happens, if it disappears from your vision, and within our vision we have something called the vanishing point, which is all down to perspective, you know, it's like as two lines converge into the distance, the ship will disappear from our vision, which obviously has limitations. But if you get a pair of binoculars out from your coat pocket, and train the binoculars on the point where the ship disappeared, well, lo and behold, it appears again mm -hmm. until eventually it reaches the binoculars vanishing point and then disappears again. But it's absolutely nothing to do with it sailing over the curvature of the Earth. Right. So, I mean, there's so much <laughs> stuff I could cover in this, but, you know. The one that gets me, because I'm from the Midwest, is Chicago. You can see Chicago, maybe not with the naked eye, maybe on the right day you can, but with binoculars, you can see... Chicago, across Lake Michigan, correct at, at a distance of 40 miles. Well, that's right. the Earth is only supposed to be 26,000 miles around, so you do the calculation, that should make it 1,000 feet below sea level. Yet I, you can see the whole city from the base, not just the tips of the tops of skyscrapers, the whole city skyline, correct. not even skyline, but just line, the whole city, yeah. And that's odd. That really doesn't make any sense. And no. it's a kind of a silly example. But when I hear that we're told the Earth orbits at 66,600 miles per hour, huh. my eyebrows raise a little. Yeah, like, where'd yeah, you get that number? Numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the other thing about that Chicago skyline vision as well is that, well, not just that, but anything that is that far away, if it is disappearing over the curvature of the globe, wouldn't the buildings be leaning backwards? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Or you'd only see the yeah. tops. Well, you can argue things. There's distortion when you use lenses 
either when you use a microscope or you know a telescope, you have a distortion with the lens. So when you have a longer lens, things are compressed and flattened. So you would probably have a harder time seeing angles like that. So that's I'm just going to play devil's advocate for that. But I wanted to kind of just touch on that quickly because earlier you were saying, Greg, that microscopes and telescopes and things like, you know, these actually both of those came out around the same year at the same time. And this was like, you know, after the round earth theory emerged and things. So it's really interesting timing. And of course, again, Royal Society, you know, all the elite bringing us these wonderful tools, but all the while we're forgetting that there's distortion involved. And we should always keep that in mind. Like when you use a microscope, I mean, they have to use like staining dyes and things. It's not like you're not really seeing you know, are we seeing reality? Good point. Yeah, I mean, it's through some kind of distortion. So, and so yeah. we're not able to really verify with that. It's not pure science, you know, pure observation. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Right on. Well, <laughs> man, we jammed in quite a lot into this two hours and I thought it was a lot of fun. I just kind of wanted to get back to exploring some big epic ideas with less doom and gloom question everything in a non-combative, non-emotional, curious way, and, you know, just see what kind of odd facts are out there. And these things do make you wonder just how deep the lies and false paradigms go. And if they've lied to us about some things that we can prove, then we should probably take a look at most of the other things we take for granted. Everyone's free to make up their own mind, but a lot of these little threads are just really curious to me, and I appreciate you both. Let the people know where they can find you online and pick up your work. Okay. Sure. Can I, I know we're, we're over our time, but I know you love this, Greg, because sure. um, we didn't get to talk about the esoteric stuff very much, the numbers and things, but somebody just brought to my attention that the queen died exactly 311 days after the pandemic was declared, which was declared on March 11th. Ah, yeah, that, that was yeah. a section I definitely was going to leave to the cutting room floor, but just real quick, since you brought it up, I mean, there are a lot of things in Welcome to the Masquerade, Prelude to the Great Reset, that you bring up when it comes to the esoteric naming and symbolic aspects of some of this. Obviously, Corona means crown, but there are other sinks, like apparently radiation on power lines is called Corona discharge. So there's that, hey, was it 5G? Was it a virus kind of thing? Yeah. Right. And then Corona is a goddess of plagues, and yeah. COVID backward <laughs> is the name of a Hebrew demon called Divok. Yeah, amazing, right? right? That means um, to divide and separate, to tear asunder, right? And what has really? this done more than anything? This crisis divide us, I mean, really effectively. Hats wow. off to them for that, right? So often they tend to use old gods and goddesses either in name or symbol for their operations. And it does seem like some kind of magic steering our attention to dark forces, maybe the fallen angels from the higher plane. Uh, and they're like, well, no, these are your new gods. Yeah. You know, and there's the anagrams like coronavirus. You can change up the letters to con or a virus. I love that, you know, yeah. is what the, actually the anagram for. You've got a lot of the players in this, like Dr. Fauci is IC fraud with an anagram. And so is like Elon Musk is lone scum. <laughs> ah. um, but, you know, there's just like. Wasn't Omicron was like moronic too? Moronic. Yeah, moronic for Omicron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's the numbers. It's like, I always point people to Zachary Hubbard. I don't know if you know his work. Yeah, he's been here. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, I, I read his book and 
his book, what's it called? Numbers Games is really incredible. He made so many yes. great links, even without the numbers added, all these coincidences of events, you know, that he uncovers are amazing. But there's a lot of numbers that have cropped up during the last couple of years with statistics and 56 and 44 and 33 and 22 and 11. And, and once you actually just, just those, I just told you, if you are aware of them and the significance esoterically, then you start to see it everywhere, you know, but 11 being like the master number in Freemasonry, 22 being the master builder number, 33 is also a Freemason number. You know, that's the 33 is the highest level in that order. And it's also, we have like 33 vertebrae, you know, you find it in nature. And what I think is that like a lot of this actually happens naturally, which is what leads a lot of people to think, well, matrix, right? Because even apart from like these players using these numbers, where in cases where they can manipulate the data and whatever, decide to use them or decide on a certain date for a certain event, you can kind of see in our own personal lives, like things happening that have nothing to do with them, it seems, right? Where the same numbers come up over and over again, like your license plate with your address or the address is all coming to the same thing in, in a, one of the numerology codes or gematria this is also called. So I've started to pay attention to that. And it's amazing to me. I mean, I'm so used to it now. I'm like, oh, of course, 11 or of course, it's, you know, 11 million or six, 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 whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it's like they've got their reasons. I mean, it's more involved than that. That's a very, you know, basic introduction. We don't have time to get into it. And I haven't, I can't say I'm an expert and I've gotten into it that much. Really, I've probably just touched the surface of it because there's several different ciphers. And, but if you were, you know, you could see possibly, at least they believe that using certain numbers has certain power and gives them certain power. And I mean, I started just playing around with the Hollywood actresses and actors' names and doing just this basic numerology and seeing the same things coming up again, a lot of 311s or 22, 11, 22, 22, 22, you know, a lot, like so many. And a lot of these actors change their names, you know, it's not their birth names. And so this has somehow given them success. Does it just happen naturally if you change your name to that number or, you know, or what? So mm. pretty interesting stuff. For sure. For sure. Man, we could probably go all day. There are so many <laughs> chapters we didn't even touch on and we barely even touched on. Welcome to the Masquerade. But yeah. we can obviously do this again sometime. And great. luckily, we aren't locked into any real format. So if it's two hours or two hours and 15 minutes, who really cares? I think the people appreciate it regardless. But uh, just to put a finer point on it, tell us about your websites and where they can go and all that good stuff. So mine is wifirefugee.com, but wifi-refugee.com. So hyphen in the middle. And you can contact me there, join my mailing list, get information about my books. I'm writing another book currently. I mean, I don't know if your listeners going to be interested in hearing more about the thing that you've been going on and on about, but I am <laughs> writing about the jab. <laughs> in more detail. Sure. Um, and John and I are also working on our transhumanist book. So all that information will be there mm. and the podcasts are all there as well. So for me, my website is falsificationofhistory.co.uk. There are lots of articles on there. My Amazon author page, you just go to amazon.wherever you are in the world and uh, type my name in the search bar. And my books should come up. I also have a bit shoot channel called John Hamer Official, three separate words. 
Um, there's quite a few interviews on there. It's not been updated for a few weeks, but Shannon and I are planning on doing a bit of an update very shortly. So, yeah, those three places. And, yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to contact me for whatever reason, just to shout at me or abuse me or say hello. He loves abuse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are. I like a bit of abuse, yeah. <laughs> My email address is jch120752 at gmail.com. And, you know, please feel free to get in touch. All right. All right. Bold, bold. Be nice, people. If you do reach <laughs> out, you're representing the show. OK, so be nice. <laughs> um, but man, I just had a great time. John, Shannon, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Bold stuff you guys are doing. Enjoyed it. I can't believe it's been six years. The world <laughs> has definitely changed a lot since then. And we won't let six years go by for the next one. Well, I hope not. It's been great. Thank you very much. I don't know if we got six years, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, All guys. Right. Thank Take you. care. All of us. Oh, hallelujah, people. Ending the year right with the conspiracy dial firmly in the red. Going about as far out as we can go and just having some fun with it. Obviously, we've had a lot of heavy episodes this year trying to get to the bottom of some very serious issues. And so I checked in on John's latest work because we did have two really good interviews way back when. And clearly he's added a lot of new material to his repertoire and bringing Shannon along was just a nice compliment to what I was already pretty sure would be a good one. Maybe you can sense that this episode has a little bit of a different vibe and I'm hoping so because I guess the overarching point I was trying to make to you guys with this one is that we don't always have to come to a conclusion on something to consider it. Nor do we have to be so damn firm on being in this camp or that camp. I've popped into the Telegram group a few times recently to make some points about this, but let's use the viruses example. Some people have become 100% convinced that viruses aren't real or basically that they aren't the cause of illness. Okay. So the gain-of-function stuff and did COVID come from a lab question, that's just noise to them. They often consider it fear porn because from their perspective, no one can create a pandemic of any kind except through media hype and fear and then injecting you with a toxin when you cave in to that fear. Otherwise, they can't hurt you. So if you come from that perspective, then you hear a THC with Dr. Robert Malone or even Dr. Jessica Rose or anyone who uses the term virus or contagious or pandemic, even just in passing, you close your mind to it. You have decided that it has no value because you're already over in this other camp. Well, that is your right, but there are some colleagues of mine who completely ignore the viruses don't make us sick camp. They think it's silliness, and they won't even entertain it. And I'm not going to name names, but they have been criticized in the Telegram group. Fine. So that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to censor any perspective from anyone that I think has something to offer us, regardless of where they fall on the virus thing, or even the flat earth thing. Because there are some interesting points in both instances that kind of make you scratch your head if you're being honest about it. But if I'm going to be open, then I need you guys to be open too, and at least meet me in the middle, right? There's nothing more frustrating than a comment like, well, this guy mentioned space five minutes in, so I had to turn it off. Really? 
how do you go through a day if you only communicate with flat earthers? A lot of people do business with all sorts of folks who believe in space, but won't do business with THC because they might say, I support the space lie. Nobody's perfect, but they kind of expect me to be. Do these same people grill every server on Flat Earth before they get a tip? Because that's kind of what you're doing to me. Like, if I don't check every box, then you can't support, or forget support, you just can't even enjoy a show that I put out. But consider my position. I want to be open to any interesting and insightful guest, but if that openness isn't appreciated, then it's very easy for a person in my spot to just say, that's it, these flat earthers or these virus hoax people are just so damn uncompromising that I can't even open that door anymore. Again, I have colleagues who have closed that door for good or have never even opened it to begin with. There's really only a few ways to be here. Besides, I get turned down all the time because a potential guest will check out the previous shows and scan the titles, and if they see things they don't like, they decline. So to even have the flat earth or virus conversation is almost a lose-lose for me. It cuts off my access to some really great people on completely unrelated subjects because they're turned off by the association. And listeners who like that stuff are the quickest to walk away if they don't hear every guest agree with these extremes in every interview. Just think about that a little bit. And if you're sick of me and THC, that's all right. Shows have life cycles in people's rotation. I get that. But to say, I liked you for years until you had X on, and now I can't listen at all. Okay, well, how about you just skip that one? <laughs> uh, this is sounding a lot more negative and chastising than it did in my head. I really don't mean it to be that way. I just wanted to make a few points about toning down the tribalism and the us-versus-them attitude when it's really just supposed to be an exploration of ideas and theories and really a journey, to use a very cringe word that everyone uses these days. I mean, you can think the Flat Earth is a psyop and also appreciate all the other things John has to say, right? His work on the Titanic and his two volumes on all the banker shenanigans are just great. So he's on to some new stuff that you don't totally... Except, so what? No matter where a person falls on some of these issues, I've been in the game long enough to be able to find the common ground with them and say, yeah, time-lapse photography of the stars really does seem off to me. Or, you're right, why are flights from Auckland to Argentina stopping in Dallas, Texas? Or for the virus thing, I can say, you're right, I've read a lot of literature about trying to infect healthy people in the lab from sick people, and it doesn't seem to work as easy as you'd expect. Or, you're right, every COVID paper I've seen about isolating the virus has a few lines about using computer models to fill in the holes, and that is a little suspect. And who knows, maybe I'm just too dumb, but these discrepancies don't lead me to ultimately conclude one thing over another. I say, yeah, they might be right, and that's good enough for me. 
But as long as our guests are trying to seek the truth and trying to help us improve our lives or expose some corruption or deceit from the system, why can't that just be enough? Why can't we just meet people where they are long enough to have a two-hour conversation, extract some good insights from their area of expertise, and not be so hypercritical over every little tiny detail? <laughs> Ultimately, that is what I was trying to provide here, is myself as an example with John and Shannon. I've said a bunch of times over the years that an exploration of an idea is not necessarily an endorsement of it or that I'm trying to push it on you or anything. So that is what it is, and I guess today was an attempt to lighten things up a bit and maybe rekindle the old approach I used to have to this thing that I'm doing. Like the dinosaur topic, that is something a lot of people probably take for granted as true, but I swear that when I saw that dinosaur sex meme, it is silly, but mating doesn't really work the way dinosaurs are presented to us. Now, maybe the reconstructions are just a bit off. I think they've always said, hey, this is our best guess. And then Hollywood runs with that, and then it gets put into our head as a concrete model, that's a possibility. Or maybe the whole thing was a Royal Society hoax, but I don't necessarily need to draw any line in the sand on that. I thought John and Shannon brought up some pretty compelling points, but then I brought up the sticking points that keep me from agreeing with them 100% and gave them the floor to respond back. <laughs> I can't believe I'm describing the way conversations work, but man, we have gotten pretty far off the mark from where we used to be. It's not just THC listeners. It's really an overarching cultural problem that we don't talk to each other anymore. We silo ourselves up. We take everything so seriously, and it just seems unhealthy to me. Unhealthy and less fun. I assume you're here to be entertained, but also learn and push and pull on ideas, not just hear a guest confirm every conclusion you might have made so that you can consider them one of the good guys or dismiss them forever. Bit of a rant, but I'm letting you know where I'm at and where I want to be and that I'm going to try to not take everything quite so seriously or try to manage these sorts of things that I might have sometimes. I'm just not going to let this stuff stress me out, whether or not you noticed that it does. But I totally did tie myself up in knots about, well, should I have Dr. Malone on if even half of his resume is true? It seems like a pretty good opportunity, but I don't know. Or should I reach out and do another show with John if he's now firmly a flat earther? I can see the comments in my head already. So... You can get a taste of how it happens on both extremes, right? I can really agonize over if this is good for the show or what sort of backlash I'm going to get. But hey, it's the end of the year and it's time to think about such things and try to retire ways of being that aren't serving me well and at least aim to change them. And that's why I'm saying all this stuff now. Let's not be so opposed to others' ideas that conflict with our own. Let's not be so quick to write people off because ultimately we're just here for a short time. We're probably not going to fix the world or even get firm answers to a lot of our questions. The point is just to enjoy the ride, and I really want to get back to not letting criticism keep me from doing that. 
causing me to self-censor who I might ask to be on or just overthink things in general. I'm going to lighten up. I'm hoping that some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, I should probably lighten up too. I'm not saying we don't have some very serious, even life-threatening, way of life-threatening issues coming at us, but it is what it is. I'm going to try to find guests that help us navigate that and help us keep tabs on exactly what to expect. And let that be the thing. (laughs) But I had a great time with this one. John and Shannon really have covered so much ground in their work. Going after the Royal Society is really a great place to put the target, and I appreciate them both. Of course, I only get paid if people think the show's first hour is good enough to come and get the second, and today, in the extra hour, we talked about flat earth flight paths that are quite curious, the idea that they might be hiding land from the rest of us, Strange reports from explorers who sought the pole that just don't really make sense. How ancient cultures viewed reality and how that story has changed over time. How paranormal experiences and abductions work in the flat earth model. The general strangeness of the mind and human consciousness. And how the nuclear bomb was potentially hoaxed. Funny point about the nuclear mushroom cloud. I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Maybe not a fan, but I'm interested in following his work, and I like about 70% of it. And I saw this article about how he hates using CGI, probably one of the reasons I like him. And he spent like several million dollars to recreate the atomic bomb drops with practical effects for his new movie Oppenheimer. And it just made me think, well, if you can recreate what we saw in the footage from World War II without a nuclear bomb just using practical effects, then is that as unique as we were led to believe it was? I don't know. But that is the bulk of what we got into in the second hour. Come on in. The water's fine. Sign up right through the show notes of your podcast app or go to thehiresidechats.com and get a free seven-day trial to start you off. I'm probably planning a big move this year. I'm trying to stack up as much cash as I can. We all have our own little challenges, but if you could come over to THC Plus for even just a couple of months, it would mean a lot to me. That's like $8 or $16. Do we at least enjoy the show that much? Besides, it's not a handout. It's not a donation where you don't get anything back, it's actually doubling the amount of content you get. But you know how math works. Though I will say a massive, gargantuan thank you to those who do subscribe to Plus and stay subscribed. I try to give you the best stuff I can, and you really have made all my dreams come true, really. But let's also take a look at the first few meetups of the new year. Go over to HiresideMeetups.com for full details on these events or to RSVP or to set up your own. But so far, we got right out of the gate, coming in hot, January 1st in Kirkland, Washington, a Seattle area cold plunge and lunch with other THC fans. January 7th, the Conspiracy Theorizers are meeting again in High Springs, Florida. January 12th, the Los Angeles Truthers once again going to Flame International Restaurant. January 13th, the National Friday the 13th THC meetup at the National Bar in Nevada City, California. 
January 13th, the Sinspiracy Monthly. Man, people do not make it easy on me reading all this stuff. Going to the Mad Tree Brewing location in Cincinnati, Ohio. January 14th, Denver gets higher at the Mercury Cafe, where they're also suggesting that you bring books to trade with uh, your other THC peers. Also on January 14th, there's a meetup in Williamton, North Carolina. And on the 15th, another Utah Higherside Bistro meetup at Athena Beans. And we'll leave it there. That covers the first half of the month. Good to see people getting out and being creative with the calendar. That's awesome. It is tough to put yourself out there sometimes. And I hope any locals hearing this are coming out to any of those events if they can. But that's it for me, guys. I'm actually going to end this with Peyton Justice's cover of a Bo Burnham song that really captures how <laughs> I sometimes feel when I push send on a new show. And I'm sure it's just the mental anguish that most people in my position feel if they care about what they're doing. I hope he doesn't mind. And cheers to the new year. I've done my part. Your move, mainstream make-believers, inside-the-box idealists, and Royal Society stooges. Your fucking move. How are you feeling? Do you like the show? Are you tired of it? Never mind, I don't want to know. Are you finding it boring? Too fast, too slow I'm asking but don't answer Cause I don't wanna know Do I have your attention? Yes or no? I bet I guess the answer But I don't wanna know Am I on in the background? Are you on your phone? I'd ask you what you're watching But I don't wanna know Is there anyone else? Still, I don't want to know I thought it'd be over by now But I got a while to go I give away the ending But you don't want to know Shit We're going to go Shit Where you don't want to know Shit Are you tired of it? Shit Never mind Shit. Yes, can I Shit. interest you in everything Shit. All of the time a Shit Yeah.